it as soon as possible. It is the way in which we propagate our species. Hi, welcome to Casual Trek, a Star Trek recap and ranking podcast. I'm Charlie Etheridge Nunn, a writer and a fan of the film Alien. Hi, I'm Marsweed Lobato. I'm a writer, stand-up comedian, and my favorite my favorite space film is Flash Gordon. And also, my oath of celibacy is on record. Oh, good. It's it's always good to be clear about that. Yup. Each episode, we watch stories from different Star Trek shows and films and rank them on a big list of best to worst. Today, we're doing something a little different from our previous casual Trek fair. Finally, we're ripping that plaster off and we're going to be looking at a Star Trek movie. I gather there's a few of these, Miles. Um, one or two, I think, um, you know, just, you know, just, you know, they, they came out, it happened, but also I wish to inform our audience that for purposes, this podcast will be presented in THX widescreen, unless oh, yeah. you're watching this on VHS, in which case this podcast will be presented in pan and scan. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, this is exciting. I've not seen this. I've not seen Star Trek The Motion Picture since I was probably single figures years old. I, I saw this film, admittedly, in the cinema a couple of months ago. Yeah, we'll get into that in a bit. But um, beforehand, Mars, what non-Star Trek thing have you been enjoying since last we spoke? Okay, I actually, I feel like I have to do some quick promotional pimping um, right now, because my... My wife and I have finally started rewatching the Christopher Eccleston era of Doctor Who um, for the first time since 2006. This is because I recently appeared on one of our Nerd and Tie sister shows, Two Boobs Watched a Tube, where I sat down with Sean and Vink to talk about the Christopher Eccleston era of Doctor Who. It was a lot of fun. There was even more of a time gap than our show because, you know, because Vink records from Japan. So while Sean and I had just woken up, it was 10.30 in the evening for him. Oh, no. Oh, yes. The other non-Trek thing I was enjoying is I've started rereading Grant Morrison's 90s Leverfest, The Invisibles. That's one of the things that was out before I got massively into Grant Morrison. So I've only read the first couple of volumes of Invisibles. Never really got round to picking up the rest. I read it fully, I think about 2007, 2008. And it's always been on my to-go-back-to list. Since then, it's just taken till now. Nice. How's it, how's it faring compared to when you first read it? I feel... I am a lot more politically in line with the comic. Um, I, I definitely feel a lot more anger at the um, the government and establishment than I did back then. Do I want to go, oh yeah, cool, cool. It's, it's not cool. You know, like having the anger at them, cool. Them still existing and being like that, less so. Yeah. But yeah, what about you, Charlie? 
so I'm incredibly late for party uh, once again at something. And in this case, it's for film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Oh, that film was spectacular. Yes. Yeah. I I knew it was going to be good. I saw it was finally on Prime and then just didn't get around to watching it. And uh, looking for something to watch on New Year's Eve Eve with my dad and my stepmother. They were faffing. I was faffing. As is always the way. It's like, well, that's right there. Why don't we watch this? And I had no idea whether it would be the right kind of thing for them. As normally we do tend to watch trash. Like entertaining trash, but still trash. And yeah, it was a fantastic ride for film. I'm sure most people listening have probably already seen it. And if not, you really should. I remember hearing people saying it was the best multiverse movie in the same year as Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which I appreciated more than I think a lot of people, mainly because it was a really fun love letter to Sam Raimi and his horror. But um, but yeah, they're right. This was better. I, I still haven't watched Multiverse of Madness. I've kind of dropped off the MCU train since um, Spider-Man Far From Home. I've just kind of not really been in that same mind space. And I'll be honest, the MCU fan base on Twitter is only slightly less annoying than the Zack Snyder cult. Oh, God, yeah. But I would say that the, that everything, everywhere, all at once might be the most Grant Morrison movie that Grant Morrison had very little to do with. Yeah, actually. Yeah, that's probably a good shout. There's a bit less of some of Grant's kinks in there, but a lot of that kind of cosmic madness. And and yeah, definitely appreciated it. And then I ruined the evening somewhat by putting on G.I. Joe Origins Snake Eyes immediately afterwards as we we were wondering what else to watch. And uh, it's bad. No, you, you should have gone for Swiss Army Man, the Daniels previous film, because, you know, that's a fun romp. I still need to see that. It looks like good fun. It's surprisingly more heartfelt than a film starring a dead farting Daniel Radcliffe you would think would be. Hmm, good eye. And on that note, while we have teased you by saying we're going to talk about Star Trek for motion picture, we're actually going to talk about an episode of Star Trek the original series, which is kind of also the same plot as Star Trek for motion picture, just a little bit different. And um, that episode is from Season 2, Episode 8, called The Changeling. This episode aired back in the 20th of September, 1967. It's written by John Meredith Lucas, directed by Mark Daniels. And the UK and US number one hits are both not great. Uh, They are Engelbert Humperdinck with The Last Waltz, which is proper your grandparents wedding kind of music and as satisfying as it is oh, to no. name, yeah it's satisfying to say his name the same way it is to say benedict cumberbatch but that's about all that it has going for it you know and the u.s had bobby gentry with an ode to billy joe which it's it's fine again it's it's not great there have been better odes 
There's been better Odos as well. Yes, much better Odos, both in in this and parallel universes. Right, so I'm I've managed to uh, to luck out by only recapping an episode of the original series instead of a motion picture. So I guess if you sort out a timer. All right. Okay. Timer is being set. Ah! That's the timer being oh set. Oh my god, that was quick. Ah. Oh. <laughs> you, you failed. You failed bad today. Oh my god. All right. Okay. All right. And three, two, one, engage. So, um, yes, the changeling. We start off with Uhura finding an unusual distress call, and Spock says there's no life coming from where the distress calls uh coming from and something's coming towards them it's shooting out a powerful bolt of energy time for everyone to tumble around the set which is frankly always a joy but not for the crew quick tilt the camera exact oh yeah tilt the camera everyone quick sharp left now right love it every single time Anyway, these attacks are going to wreck the ship if they keep coming, and torpedoes are doing nothing. It's all looking a bit bad, so fine. Let's start actually trying to talk to whoever's doing this. Kirk radio's over, and ugh, they send maths back. How dare they? This, this message, it's from something called Nomad, and its mission is apparently non-hostile despite the shooting. It wants to speak to them, and it's a bit too small for people when they're like, is this a ship or something? And no, it's way too small to beam anyone over to it, and otherwise they'll be, you know, off in space, I guess. So best beam Nomad over to them instead. And (laughs) I thought maybe it's a salt and pepper shaker, just not a Dalek-type one. But actually, think about it again. This is kind of like a giant toothbrush like a giant electric toothbrush just without the brush part of it it's a kind of probe looking device that dangles around like it feels like someone is dangling it from a bit of twine or a bit of like fishing line or something when it floats around it's kind of fun to look at but incredibly cheap it floats around and it asks about the tour it asks about where they come from Kirk figures out, well, Kirk decides it's fine to say Earth solar system because it doesn't know where that is. And problem is, yes, Nomad knows exactly where Earth is and believes Kirk to be someone who's its creator. Kirk doesn't seem like a man who works with anything technical engineering wise, so it's unlikely. Despite all that, Nomad says yes, yeah. Kirk programmed his function and it wants to destroy everything biological that's not perfect. And that's that's a bad sign because it's killed four planets already and is probably going to work its way through everywhere until Earth. Lieutenant Singh uh, checks out Nomad, who glows at him. He asks what Nomad wants and I do worry that he's going to develop some kind of emotional attachment to it because we've had previous with this uhura calls in and again i'm i'm beginning to get a bit gun shy with some of these star trek plots because when this happens and she starts singing on the radio to him 
um, they die, or at least in conscience of the king, that's what happened. And does this mean that Uhura is some kind of like uh, a psychopomp or something? You know, is she involved somehow with the deaths of these extras? But no, luckily, this time, this extra is saved, and Nomad. While uh, while Uhura is busy singing to Lieutenant Singh, Nomad just fucks off. It leaves, and um, and Singh's alive, which is one minute. Yo, oh shit. Okay, Kirk, Spock, and Bones look into Nomad and its whole deal. Apparently, it was made by a Jackson Roy Kirk, which is kind of close to Kirk, and Nomad's evidently gone a bit wrong and thinks Kirk's its dad. It's also changed a bit in its time flying through space where its mission's kind of gone a bit deadly. Uh, Scotty spies it flying into the bridge and it's it's kind of not intrigued by the bridge but by, by Uhura's singing. It hits her with a big glowy beam and then flings Scotty across, across the bridge to death. Nomad goes, oh, does Scotty need fixing? You know. And at this point, I may as well take him up on it. Burke, Burke, what? Bones works out a regimen of training materials to go, here's how human medicine works. Here's how a body works. And they take Scotty and Nomad. Oh, oh. nope. Nope. Wow. Nope. Oh, this is what I get for making vague notes. Okay. All right. Oh. Okay. That's okay. all right. Setting the stopwatch and engage. Okay. So, guess what? Scotty's alive again. Yes. Nomad can fix death, apparently. What it can't fix is Uhura, whose mind's been wiped entirely. Um, the Enterprise being what it is and the crew being what they are, there's a very pragmatic, well, let's teach her everything from scratch and get her back to work in a week or so, which... It ignores some of the tragedy of someone's life and experiences and all of that going. But as long as they're a productive member of crew, I guess that's fine. Nomad and Spock aren't really doing great together. Like Nomad's not cooperating with Spock and likes the idea of Spock being orderly as far as his genetics. He's just not like the other carbon life forms that, uh, that are around. Uhura's lessons... I guess, uh, uh, going a bit patchily. Written words aren't going well and reading them, but she is still able to switch back and forth between English and Swahili with spoken language. So hopefully there's still something in there. Spock tries mind melding with Nomad. He sees some kind of collision with an entity called something like Tan Ru, which sounds like, is it Tomar Ray? Or any of them. Like a Green Lantern extra, basically. It merged with Nomad and has gone a bit crazy trying to sterilize things. And really, its purpose was to sterilize soil samples, not, you know, bleach whole planets to death. Kirk gets Nomad to, to cut contact with Spock. And luckily, that works just enough for them to get away from it. Um, Kirk explains that it's a changeling and hey, that's the name of the episode. It's like an ancient earth legend, a fairy assuming the identity of a stolen child. Once again, very thankful that these kind of myths have made it into the future of Star Trek. And yeah, Nomad 
while it was in prison for a bit, just floats through it, disintegrates the guards. So I think that's our first red shirts getting killed that we've seen. And it hovers around engineering. Um, Scotty just tries telling it off. This seems to work as it starts repairing the ship. Or at least, you know, it's not disintegrating Scotty, but repairing the ship, improving it beyond its ability to not shake apart in space. Yes, we're taking this ship to 11. Kirk explains, hey, if I'm your maker, guess what, buddy? I'm biological. That makes some consistency problems with its idea that it's perfect and its creator should be perfect. This doesn't work in its brain. Kirk then brings out the home truths about Nomad's imperfections and how it's blended with an alien entity. And anything with errors should be sterilized. So maybe, you know, maybe all of this is a bit of a mistake. Maybe all of this is a bit bad, you know. Maybe Nomad's just a bit shit. Uh, it gets all high-pitched, and they clamp it down while it's trying to think, and they beam it out in space where it blows up. That's great. Problem solved there. Uhura, she's back to college level, um, education-wise, but does she have any memories? Is she effectively an entirely new person? We don't know. Oh, well. Uh, Kirk laments about how good a Doctor Nomad was compared to Bones, and it was his son too. He's very proud of his son, the Doctor, what blew up in space. The end. Okay. Yeah. Charlie, that was four minutes and eight seconds, which means that I have to summarize Star Trek, the motion picture, in under nine minutes to beat you this episode. My word, that, that went by way faster than I thought. Okay. So, Charlie, I have a qu yeah. I have a question for you. Mm. Have you ever made a mistake so embarrassing that you wanted to explode? Probably. Probably. More than likely. More than likely. Yeah, you know, my life is one filled with a lot of hubris and regret. So, uh, you know, maybe this week even. I'm sure I've called a teacher mum or dad at some point, and that's bad enough oh. for me. Oh, that's bad. Okay, yeah, it's all right. That's, you know, I think that's a fairly common one. Um, it's, yeah, I, I, would, I would worry if I had a self-destruct button if I did that kind of thing. Mm. I, I think, like, the stuff that happens to her and Scotty in this episode, like, this is the stuff we would make fun of for the classic Trek re reset button in, like, TNG or Voyager. Definitely. It's like Scotty died and came back. What? Nothing was dealt with there. This is just another day for him. How many times has he been murdered on the job and resurrected? How many times has Worf just gone nuts and eaten someone? Mm. Like, this, this is the weird stuff Starfleet has to sign off on. Um, like, I am sure that, you know, the reason why Starfleet Academy take so long to get through is that they have to they have to fill out all the non-disclaimer forms about what they're going to go through in life in the Starfleet. It's like time travel, alternate universe duplicates, possible assimilation, death, having your memory wiped. Yeah. Getting yeah. turned into, I don't know, a salt deposit. Getting turned into a Welshman. God. Yeah. So many different things. 
Now, with Ahura, we know that she's going to keep on being with the Enterprise. I assume, given this is not even midway through season two, she will refer to her past at some point. So we have to assume she will get her memories back. It's just how blasé they were about, oh, well, she's she's been erased as a person. Oh, well. Just educate the body and put it back in the bridge. Amazing. This just seems to have that kind of that 1960s, eh, women be shopping that Star Trek kind of has until the 90s. And um, you mentioned on Messenger earlier, this is our first He's Dead, Jim. This is our first He's Dead, Jim. I, I think this is our first, like you said, I think this is our first red shirt death that no one really kind of talks about. Like, we had the guy who died in Cat's Paw, but Kirk just won't shut up about him for the mm. entirety of the episode. Like, he was everybody's mate. Oh, his best mate, whoever he was. Yeah. Um, four, like, security guards get vaporized, and it's just kind of like... Kirk's is just standing there going, should I have potatoes for lunch? Maybe chicken? Uh, Scotty was just thrown and brought back. These guys are disintegrated. There's no coming back from that. This feels like, I don't know, maybe Nomad was just losing it a bit with these organics or something. But, um, but yeah, that's quite the escalation. I was surprised that Lieutenant Singh didn't die, like you said in your recap. Yeah, yeah, I was prepared. I was making guesses. I was like, oh no, is this going to be the second time in a row where someone's on the comms to Uhura? She's singing and they're dead. Like, is this a trope that I've not heard about? Last time it was a um, a Kleenex bottle. This time it, w it would have been uh, death by water heater. Nomad looks so cheap. And I, I appreciate <laughs> the cheap tech but my word like this looks cheaper than most it it belongs in a doctor who episode okay no okay I, first of all i will not abide that slander oh. i will definitely say this is more tomorrow people level <laughs> of cheap wow okay <laughs> okay this is this is one gonna be like prove myself to be a bit of a hypocrite mm -hmm. like when doctor who does cheap I, I will just kind of wash my hands and go, yeah, it looks cheap, but it's Doctor Who. When Star Trek does cheap, I'm like, that that looks cheap, and I'm going to mock it for all it's worth. See, and that's what you get for being a more casual fan of Star Trek than you are Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah, this is... Like, it's... This one's... This is... This one's decent. Um, it's right. In, 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 like, I'll, I'll put it this way. I watched the first half of this episode. I, I, I've, I'm starting to try again with going to the gym, you know, to, on a regular basis. And the first half of this episode, I was able to watch at the gym while I was doing my workout and my biking and not lose anything. Mm. Second half, you know, it cut out. My, the Wi-Fi on my phone cut out, so I had to go home and finish it. Like... Yeah, it's fun. Um, I I think we've reached that point with Star Trek where the writers kind that we we now have consistency in how the characters are going to act. Mm. 
So we've reached that point where we don't have that weird rough period where everything is new and strange. And so we can just get these guys in a story. You know, Kirk, um, you know, I think it's also a first for our show. I think this is the first time we've had an episode where Kirk gets to whip out his famed, like, Kirk verbal jujitsu to uh, make computers destroy themselves um, through the power of Kirk telling a computer that they're wrong and that stuff. Yeah, I don't think we've seen that yet in uh, in any episodes we've covered. So, yeah, it's... It's definitely more more competent than some of the ones we've seen. It's also still fairly shaky looking. And I admit, I the format of our show does a very good job of providing this in contrast and comparison to the motion picture, which we'll get to shortly. But this doesn't do well specifically compared to that. No. It also doesn't help that the way Nomad talks about imperfections and and intellect, it sounds like a lot of people online who really like the word of Jordan Peterson. Yes, yeah, there's definitely that kind of weird Petersonian vibe coming from it. And yeah. you, you don't want that, really, um, even from... A no, movie. I can imagine... I can imagine Nomad reading out the, twi- the the tweets of Ben Shapiro, and it, it would sound in character for it. Oh my god. Are, they, are people like your Shapiros and your Petersons similarly faulty in that they were just meant to sterilize dirt and went really severely off script? Like <laughs> maybe, maybe Peterson was just a tidier room guy, and, and that went increasingly insane it's like he only had that one thing to do got tangled up with some kind of space entity and went from maybe wash your dick to let's create some kind of weird christian like trad calf state sort of thing and crying when someone asked him to define a woman no i think jordan peterson is a rumba that actually accidentally sucked up a psychology phd Oh, you need to you need to make sure that doesn't happen. You know, you avoid the warranty. Like I at the same thing type I, I think Ben Shapiro is a rumba which sucked up a copy of How Not to Pleasure Your Wife and made that his entire personality. <laughs> on that wonderful note, we should probably move on and and have a look at our big list our ever-growing list of best-to-worst Star Trek episodes. And this is our list of currently 29 items, starting with the number one, the best that we have seen so far in Star Trek is Deep Space Nine's pilot, Emissary. Happy 30th birthday to Emissary, which, as we're recording has just passed 30 years since it aired at the midpoint we've got yeah at the midpoint we have the good enterprise episode the andorian incident and then right down at the bottom we have the worst so far the worst (laughs) enterprise episode future tense which 
does a bit of Doctor Whoing. But... Merry, Merry Christmas, Miles. <laughs> yeah, my Christmas gift to you. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. It's the worst thing we've seen so far. So the good news is, I think Changeling is is vastly superior to that. Um, my eyes first set on on Space Nineteen, which we have for the original series Catspaw, which similarly I I enjoyed, and I think like I really enjoyed the spoopiness of that, which helped flavour what was going on. I think what above uh, as that... we all know, mm. Catspaw is my cat Willie's favourite episode of Star Trek. He did pass me a note earlier to say oh, yeah. that the Changeling is his least favourite because Nomad reminded him of a, reminded him of a vacuum cleaner. Oh, that's fair. Okay. okay. So, we'll have to so right now on the cat on the list of the ship's cat, um, this is definitely the the worst episode of Star Trek. Okay. Um, but for us humans, ooh. Is this better or worse than Encounter at Farpoint? Oh, the classic question. So Encounter at Farpoint's at what? Place 21. <laughs> and it's it is iconic. You know, yep. it is a very good um a very good episode for getting those kind of points across about who is e- who are each of these characters, what are their one defining traits. Um I think I, if we're not looking at the cultural impact or anything like that, which is one of the few reasons why Encounter at Farpoint is higher than some of the episodes beneath it, like the Changeling, it's got a lot of fun to it. Yeah. It it glides down fairly, fairly easily. Like there's no, it doesn't feel like there's wasted time in all of it. You you get your red shirt murders, you get Scotty dying and coming back, you get Kirk being a dad, admittedly not a proud dad until the very end. You get Spock doing a mind meld and doing some Vulcan beat poetry. Yes, yeah, love a bit of that. Um, I don't know because the thing is, what else does it have to offer? And when I say, oh yeah, it's got a red shirt dying, this is our first encounter with that. Should that colour it in in our list? Because there's going to be more of that. If we ranked every episode of Star Trek based on its callous disregard for life, yeah, we'd be here all day. This is true. There is a for a, a wonderful kind of exploration and knowledge based uh, society of nerds. There is a lot of that Professor X style callous disregard for for human life. Um. So for me, I think Cat's Paw is probably my ceiling. I think it's better than Cat's Paw, to be honest. Ooh. Like this one, this one doesn't drag. Like Cat's Paw for me, kind of dragged. And this, 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 this moved at a clip, and it was fun. It does move at a clip. Okay, yeah, both both are about comparable. Fun-wise, it doesn't have any cosmic entities, and I won't insist that you summon the ship's cat back me up. If, if Nomad was cracked open and it was filled with clangers... Oh! Best yeah. episode of Star Trek, honestly. But, yep. okay, I, lack of clangers, 
This goes, this is number 20 on the list. Yeah? Okay. Yep. Okay. Cool. Yeah, John Electric Toothbrush isn't quite as isn't quite as fun as the clangers. And I, it's not I know craftier. Yes, yeah, true. Yeah. Oh good old Robert Block. He he treated me with that episode. He did a good one. So, um do you want to know the strange connection between the clangers and Star Trek, which I found out? Oh my god, do I? Um, there is, I guess they revived the Clangers a couple of years ago. What? And, yeah, they, they revived the Clangers, and the American version is read by William Shatner. Hmm. I know. Wow. Yeah. That, that feels so weird. That, yeah. My word. I'm going to have to check out a clip of it or something, just to... <laughs> Just to see what on earth they've done to it. I oh my god, is it going to be CGI? What? I, I don't know. I've I've not I've not wanted to watch. I've been kind of scared. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am a man who saw post season ten Simpsons specifically to see when it dies, and you know, I'm fine putting an amount of these things in my brain. It's, it'd be like if they revived Ivor the Engine, but it's done in CGI. I'd be like, no, this is wrong. Stop it. Oh. This is this is meant to have two frames of animation an hour. <laughs> or CGI pugwash. <laughs> yeah, you, but you know, you, they couldn't call Well, they never called them actually semen stains. That's just an urban legend. I don't know. Um, oh, that's sad. I want a revival of the Raggy Dolls done in stop motion by Guillermo del Toro. Yes, having seen the the Pinocchio recently, that that would work. I have not watched Pinocchio recently. Okay, other weird updatings of classic British Bill and Ben. Hmm. Actually, I think Bill and Ben. Actually, I think Bill and Ben had a revival a couple like a while back. You know, Bill and Ben, the Flower Pot Men. Oh yeah, I know them. Yeah, my mm. uh, as a kid, my mum hit a point of evidently the kind of equivalent to our nerd nostalgia sort of thing of um, showing us some Muffin the Mule and and some Bill and Ben, and we even have a, a weird little Muffin the Mule toy, which looks horrible. Oh. That's kind of almost skeletal looking, and you push the bottom <laughs> of it, and it just, it just collapses. It's like, oh, oh, no. oh that's sad. Did, did, did she show you any pinky and perky? Yeah. Yeah, we'd rather, rather not talk about that. We never talk about pinky and perky. No, no. Let's, especially for our dear friends over in the States, um, you've been spared. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll say uh, that. All right. I'll so... say that. They're chipmunks, I guess. I don't know. I, I think that I, I think the chip the chipmunks are less drug induced than Pinky and Perky because I swear that like I can imagine William Burroughs just getting high on smack and watching Pinky and Perky and cackling hysterically. Yeah, I mean they are the ingredients for bad trip. All right. And on that note, uh, the the next thing 
that we are covering tonight is it's a big one. It's Star Trek the motion picture. <sighs> yes. Uh, this aired on the 7th of December, 1979. The teleplay was by Harold Livingston. The story, well, asterisk, I guess. Uh, story is by alien franchise novelization writer Alan Dean Foster. And directed by Robert Wise. The, uh... Oh, have you got something for them? I was going to say that Robert Wise directed The Day the Earth Stood Still, and one of my personal top ten favorite films, the original 1966's The Original, The Haunting. Ooh. Cool. I should really look into what these all of these credited folks do because aside from just going, oh yeah, when I was like twelve or thirteen, I adored those Alan Dean Foster Alien and Aliens novels, and I made, I customized action figures for because the Alien franchise had a Kenner series of Aliens characters and realizations. Oh, yeah. I customized other action figures with Warhammer paints to make the entire cast of Aliens and Alien. I I was a real nerd. I still am. It, it doesn't show at no, all. No, no, of course. People, I don't think they noticed, Miles. I think I got away with it. No. Good, good plan. Um, also, Robert Weiss also directed um, the original West Side Story. Oh, Got quite a quite a palette. Scott. He has he has he's got quite a a range. So if I start breaking into show tunes during my synopsis, that's why. Okay, okay, no other reason. Not this time, at least. No, because when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. Oh God, I was just thinking, do we have are there enough musical episodes of Star Trek to do a musical episodes episode? And the worst thing is, the main one I can think of is from Picard. So. Uh... Yeah, we'll we'll bend now. Anyway, the number one hits uh, again. Neither of them are are wonderful. They're, I realise my musical tastes go before the motion picture, and then quite a bit after. Because yeah, this is Doctor Hook with "When You're in Love with a Beautiful Woman," and Barbara Streisand and Donna Summer with "No More Tears, Enough Is Enough." I vaguely remember one of them and meh basically yeah 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 right so um i figured unless you're feeling very confident about hitting a five minute deadline with this i know there's a lot of slow lingering space shots that um we would do like we did for the pilots and go for 10 minutes and see uh whether you can express all of the uh, all of the things all that people should know about Star Trek colon the motion picture. Okay. Okay. I am ready. Okay. Let's go that away. Right. Star Trek semicolon the motion picture. Go. Starts off with two minutes 
of Space Shots and Music, The Overture. Yes, we're going classical Hollywood with this kind of stuff. When the film starts, we have the whole credits. Jerry Goldsmith, brilliant. We then open Cleon ships in space. They are approaching a big blue space cloud. The Cleons fire on the space cloud. The cloud fires back, disintegrating the three ships immediately. Cut to Vulcan. Vulcan looks like a quarry pit in Cardiff. And there's Spock. Spock's kind of grown his hair out to be kind of hippie locks. And he senses something. A presence. He's actually there for the Kulna ritual to purge his remaining emotions. He has tried, but the ancient monk senses the curiosity he feels upon sensing this blue cloud and tells him, nope, you have failed Kona. Get out. Cut to a space station and a guy outside in a spacesuit. The blue cloud is approaching the space station. News about the cloud has reached Earth, where now Admiral Kirk is going to a meeting with the rest of the Admiralty. It turns out that they're going to launch a mission to, to find this blue space cloud, and the only ship in the sector is the Enterprise, which is just being finished being retrofitted after its five-year mission under the command of Captain Will Decker. Kirk speaks to the new Vulcan science officer, Zon, who, in the original Phase 2 episode this film was based on, would have been the replacement character because Leonard Nimoy weren't signing, weren't signing any contracts. This character, Zon, a full Vulcan, will be an important, integral character to the future of the franchise. Kurt goes sees the Admiral and promptly gets his command back. No one tells Decker. Meanwhile, the Enterprise... The transporters aren't working, so Kirk and Scotty are going to have to fly over in pod. And fly over they do for about 10 minutes of lingering space shots, which, okay, on the big screen looks beautiful, but, you know, it takes up time and it's 2001 A Space Odyssey slow. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's masturbatory. They dock on the Enterprise and... Kirk finds Decker and promptly tells him, look, Decker, um, I took your job. You can be second in command. And Decker's like, son of a bitch, you just want to be back and behind. You just want to be captain of the Enterprise. And, and Kirk's like, I ain't saying nothing. <laughs> They're just the last few members of the crew. Um, Zon attempts to transport over with another officer, and it goes horribly wrong. And they die just to prove to you that space is dangerous meanwhile the navigator a bold delton called ilea steps onto the bridge and says to kirk that her oath of celibacy is on record looks like she knows what kirk's like turns <laughs> out that that ilea and decker had a little thing um in the past but um decker promptly scarped because apparently deltons are really horny um, Kirk gets Bones on board, who gets transported with a fantastic 70s sex oh my god, god beard and a medallion. Here's a... When, when he appeared on the big screen when I was watching, I couldn't help but shout out, is his over-celibacy on record? Oh, you know it isn't. Oh, you know it isn't. So, meanwhile, um, with... 
Decker taking over as replacement science officer and second in command, the Enterprise leaves and warps ahead. Something goes wrong with the warp, and everything gets really slow. And then a rock appears in the warp tunnel, and Kirk orders the phaser, and Decker goes, No! Be late at phaser order! Use photon torpedoes! Because it turns out that how the ship has been retrofitted, the phasers wouldn't have worked, which Kirk would have known if he'd actually done the, the reading on how the ship's been retrofitted. Kirk? Kirk can't read. Kirk can't read. Um, Kirk is apologetic to Decker for daring to you know, like, undermine his command in a crisis situation. And at that moment, a Vulcan shuttle arrives containing Spock, who has dressed like he's just recently rest left a Vulcan Renaissance Festival. Yeah. Spock seems colder and less, um, less emotional than he did before, and he gets reinstated as science officer, which means that Decker gets demoted Twice in one film. Hope nothing bad happens to him the rest of the film. Spock gets the, the ship fixed and they head off towards the blue cloud. Spock tells Kirk and McCoy that he felt an emotional connection with this blue cloud and wishes to investigate it further. McCoy is kind of suspicious about, Vo um, about Spock's um, motivation, worried that he might put his own scientific curiosity beyond the safety of the crew, and the Enterprise approaches the Blue Cloud. Oh yes, I forgot about the space station. It got disintegrated, and that poor guy outside probably stuck there. Hopefully someone remembered to taxi over and give him a lift, because otherwise he kind of did. They reach the outskirts of the Blue Cloud. It's massive. It's big. It shoots a lightning bolt probe at the Enterprise, which damages it, and it's it's the damaging from an alien scan. The Enterprise goes in further and further, and it turns out that the blue cloud isn't just a cloud, it's actually a gigantic, big, bloody spaceship, which just is has a blue cloud around it. They can't sense any life in there. A second probe attacks the ship, it disintegrates one guy, and then disint disintegrates Ilea. Oh no, Deck is having the worst day of his life. I mean, she is too, admit. That's, yeah, that he, she is too. Seconds later, we get another uh, bolt of energy, and Ilea appears naked in um, Ilea's shower. This isn't actually Ilea, it's a robot probe designed to look, it look like Ilea by an alien intelligence which somehow knows what high heels are. I don't mind, I'm a fan. It sees Decker and has, like, it has an emotional reaction in calling him Decker instead of Decker Unit, realizing there's the possible idea that part of Ilea's personality might remain inside the, inside the probe shaped like Ilea. Kirk, who was clearly planning to try and bang a robot, begrudgingly lets Decker have robot banging duties this episode, this movie. Meanwhile, Spock takes a spacesuit and goes out to investigate further. I'm flying through an entrance which looks like a giant space sphincter. 
Inside this craft is big. It's really big. Spock mind melds with a giant bolt of blue energy and is sent falling backwards towards the Enterprise. He's picked up and he's brought on board and Spock starts laughing and crying. He realizes that this creature, which is called Vija, is like him. Um, a creature of, super of incredible intelligence but doesn't understand its own emotional needs. Spock grasps Kirk's hand and realizes that he, that Vija doesn't understand love or what it is to feel. Instead, it just has a single question. Why am I alive? Um, Decker off screen clearly does the nasty with the Idlea probe and, mm -hmm. and the enterprise goes on forward. Vija is actually some kind of um, artificial being which was lost in deep space and repaired and reconstructed and made godlike by this race of machine beings. And it is now searching for the creator, which it believes to be an artificial intelligence like it. And like that it and that any organic units should be should be destroyed. Unfortunately, the cloud has just reached Earth and is preparing to destroy Earth because the creator isn't responding to Vija's calls. Kirk claims to know where the, where the creator is and wants to see the core of Vija. Vija lets them into the final center of the ship and oh. they discover what's, what looks like... Hey. Oh! Oh, oh well. Hey. Oh, just as we hit the core. In, in, in my defense, unlike, mm -hmm. you know, it took me this long to go for a film and not a 50-minute episode of television. Wow. Oh, such shade. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's see okay. how long it takes you to do the rest of it. I'm hoping at least four minutes and nine seconds, but we'll see. All right. Right. Go. We'll see. So, they get to the core of Vija, and they find what looks like an old NASA probe. Wait a second. What's this? Under this burnt-off lettering. Why? It's not Vija. It's Voyager. Voyager 6. It turns out that there was an ancient NASA probe mission, which must have fallen through a wormhole or something, and was damaged and lost, and found and repaired, and it's gained so much intelligence, so much knowledge, that it is literally godlike, and now it's returned to Earth to give the creator all the information it wants. But it won't let Kirk get the information. It won't let Kirk access via the computers. What Vija has done, it wants to merge with its creator. You know, whereas Decker and Kirk wanted to bang a robot, Vija wants to bang a human. And so the only way to communicate with with Vija is to physically input it itself. Kirk is about to do it, but Deck is like, I got this, fam. I want to do this. I want to merge with Ilea. And he inputs the information. And Decker and Vija and the Ilea probe merge into a godlike being, which then ascends to the next plane of existence. And Vija disappears 
Earth is saved, leaving only the Enterprise. Kirk, return, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy return to the ship, and they just decide to pick a direction and go out because the human adventure is only just beginning. Hey, that's only two minutes and five seconds over. Well done. You win this time, Marv. So, Marv. Uh, Charlie? All right, fantastic. Back. You're back. I have no idea what happened there. Okay, uh, just so you know, um, you were going to have like 50... When I realized that you disappeared... There's about 50 seconds of me badly singing Star Trekking, so right. you may want to try and keep that in somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll probably put it at the end or something. Who knows? Okay, good. Okay, um, so just so you knew, you cut out at the words, what the fuck? So, <laughs> so Charlie, yeah. if you would like to finish that sentence. I would, I would very much. Miles, what the fuck? fuck is up with the uniforms for a, a, t a film that was so pretty i was so distracted with how ugly the uniforms were for this entire film i feel like some admiral's son designed them and they had uh, to accept them or something i i think this is brutalism in fashion format oh. because like this film looks spectacular. Mm -hmm. The space scenes, the special effects, the you sets look amazing. Lovely. The uniforms look crap. They, they like, look like the low-level workers in a dystopian science fiction. They, they, look, they look like extras in an episode of Blake 7. They're, oh my god, they look like the crew in some amateur theatre production. It's... It's terrible. I've uh, I've seen I've seen people's Star Trek uniforms in fan films, mm -hmm. which look better than this. I mean, thank God that they go to the maroon uniforms in the movies because they have some color. They look cool. Like they like yeah. I like. There are two Star Trek uniforms I would like to own to wear. Um, one is the male miniskirt from season one of TNG. I'm Scottish enough to pull it off. And the second yeah. is the maroon movie uniform. This this just looks 70s and not like the cool 70s. Not like Uhura's awesome fro in this yeah. film. This is the bad 70s. This is like the post-Watergate malaise 70s. Oh, God. It's, they're so bad. And apparently no one liked them as well having a look online it's like yeah i i get it i mean don't get me wrong like kirk this is we have now entered corset era william shatner so i'm assuming for him there was at least the benefit of that and there's a point where he he's wearing like a, a sleeveless number which makes him feel like he's it may be a captain of a yacht maybe he's going to be sailing the, some people to the next White Lotus location or something. It, it's it's the love boat. It's the love boat. The motion picture. Mm. Um, I mean, at least bones. Like 
Bones looking like disco hobo there. He he reminded me of um, one of my customers when I was working in a comic shop. This guy who always wore not quite that outfit. So it was deep, like a rich purple, but it was open about as far. And the medallion was almost as big as Bones's medallion. Then with all that chest hair underneath, it was like... Oh my God! Was this where it came from? Is this where his fashion choices? I, I, I think Bones' disco hobo could have hung out with your mate Hugh. Hmm. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I. Th- I think they might have been aiming for different parties, but they would definitely be down for partying together and like break into the other ones parties or anything I, like that okay i want to talk about shatner for a second okay okay just one. Uh, okay first of all there's a really interesting fun game to play with this film mm-hmm. which is freeze frame it anytime shatner is on screen with uh james Doohan, and try and rank on a one to ten scale how much Doohan is clearly weighing up how much his career will be ruined if he punches Shatner right there and then. <laughs> it is a fun game. Oh, Second, do you, yeah. do you think that Shatner picked up in the script that Kirk is kind of a dick in this film? I don't think Shatner's ever realized that. Because I think this is, this is Kirk at his most unlikable. Like, Kirk is a bullying jerk throughout most of this film. Yeah, yeah. Like, Decker... Decker has a really shit time of it, you know? Being merged... Like, being physically obliterated and merged with a kind of, you know, an ancient probe that we sent out that has achieved some kind of self-awareness is a high point for him. And that's that's a bit sad. He's no one told him. No one told him he was being replaced. And you could see most of the crew knew. They're like, hey, yeah. Uh, yeah. Back. We knew it. Like this like, Oh fuck. No one told him. It it's this great moment when Star Trek the Motion Picture turns into an episode of The Office. Oh, it's I would love to see those cutaways. Like this needed like George Takei just doing a um Jim from the office style uh mug to camera. Oh you know he would. <laughs> like Sulu would be all about that. And um and yeah, so he does that and it's like fine, you're captain now, I'll do the science. It's like wait a second, we got Spock back. So oh Oh, I'm not even doing the science then. What What am I going to do here? I'll just what, stand what? here, suggest something, and you'll tell me my idea's shit. That's it. That's my job now. Fucking hell. Poor Decker. I felt sorry for the lad. This is Decker's not great day. Like, yeah. So how much of the background to this film do you know? Um, I saw the center seat documentary episode a while ago so i know i know bits and pieces about the kind of development hell of it so because this was originally meant to be the pilot uh for the first attempt at a star trek continuation um which was called star trek phase two yeah um and with 
uh, Ilea and Decker, you've got a, a first draft at Troy and Riker from TNG. And then, of course, you've got, you know, because Lennon Nimoy wasn't wanting to play Spock, um, they were going to have Zon, who was going to be a full Vulcan instead of a half-human like Spock was. And, yeah, Phase 2 fell apart, and then Star Trek um, saw that Star Wars was making all the money. And Param and while Disney was like, hey, let's make the black hole, um, Paramount was like, okay, time to dust off the Star Trek hat, and let's make a movie. I, I appreciate how they managed to recycle so many parts from, uh, from Phase 2. You know, that, that was quite nice going, okay, yeah, we'll get that Vulcan in, just kill him in a transporter yeah. act. We'll, we'll make a movie and we'll give Gene Roddenberry full creative control. Mm. And then Gene Roddenberry never had full creative control ever again. Yeah, it feels like when, when Chris Claremont was given full creative control again with, um, with X-Men Revolution. Well, well, thankfully, the Enterprise didn't fight the Neo. Yeah, God, I'm about to read that as well. Oh, it's it's going to be rough. Anyway, yeah, so it's... I made some choices with this, and despite how it sounds like it was a real clusterfuck behind the scenes, they made a very beautiful movie when you're not looking at the uniforms. Yeah, like, te- like, vi- like this film looked amazing on the big screen. Like, there are so many little details that I've never seen before on TV. Like, when the Enterprise is leaving the space dock, there's a little guy who's just kind of in a spacesuit who's just kind of waving on one of the support mm-hmm. gantries. Oh, wow. I I saw it on a big TV. Like, um, we've not got the biggest kind of thing out there, but it is a very nice, very big TV that um that it was watched on and it's a rare time that i i exposed emma to some star trek because i realize i i can't keep in good stead in this relationship and show her episodes of enterprise yeah so i i try not to um not to expose her to too much trek but this and like watching it on that screen and going i am like retrospectively so jealous of you for seeing this in the cinema because as long as it was and frankly it it feels long but it's nothing compared to your modern movies no you know it's what two and a bit hours and you go like i was never like i wasn't bored so much as there were some moments which felt like a good kind of just immerse yourself in how massive how utterly massive that alien ship was or the glory of seeing how much work they've put into that shipyard. We both like Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. It's not my main fandom, but yeah, I I like it to a casual sense. I feel that in many ways, Star Wars kind of ruined science fiction and cinema for a good chunk of the 80s and 90s because... Mm. Wait, a film like The Motion Picture, which is more like 2001 A Space Odyssey than it is a, you know, than The Changeling. Yeah. We, we really don't get these kind of movies, which are like big, 
like, I think the closest to this might be Interstellar that we've had in a while. Mm. Where it's this big visual, it's this big visual spectacle, which is, you know, high on ideas and concepts and kind of up and down on emotional, emotional arcs and through lines. Although there are some great emotional moments in Interstellar. We just don't get these big object in space movies as much as we really ever did. Because, you know, a lot of like seven, you know, a lot of these seventies space movies before Star Trek and Star Wars look cheap. Like that was the one yeah. th- that was the that's the, the big pioneering thing. Like with Star Wars. It wasn't just like the universe or the concepts. It was that you have these big, amazing looking special effects which have the sense of verisimilitude. Mm. And just seeing this on the big screen really makes me appreciate that you really have to see some of these films on the big screen. Because if you're watching this on a t- on a TV, when you can fast forward or you can rewind, the film's not going to play the same. Because your attention, you can get up and leave the room. Whereas with this film, you're sitting in a in a big cinema. You're watching this massive alien voyage, and it's breathtaking. Like this is honestly of the the Trek films, of the classic Trek films. This is really my favorite. I mean, this is one of my least least seen ones i've i've never seen insurrection and then this and the latter two jj abrams era star treks are the only ones i've ever seen once right and watching this again i am definitely it feels like a lot of the visuals a lot of the ideas are going to stick with me for way that i hold a lot of those memories of the, the films I have seen, you know, 10 plus times, like your first contacts and your Star Trek sixes uh, since. And it's going to be interesting weighing this against them where child Charlie thought, oh, this is taking ages. And, you know, it looks pretty, but not a massive amount happens. And that's that's something we're revisiting it as an adult. Uh, it's it's fascinating. It's it's probably watching. Actually, you were saying about two thousand one and uh, black hole. Of course, the other science fiction film coming out around the same time as this, the same year as this, was Alien. And yeah. you get that same that same sense of that gradual patience that lets show people. You know, it's a it's a janky working class kind of like space truckers. Not for film space truckers, but concept. You know, these are working class like loaders and transporters in space. Let's marvel at what can be done with the the miniatures, what can be done with the effects. And there's that sense of wonder of it all, even in that kind of slightly grimier world. And I know, obviously, these days you've got a lot more kind of the fast cutting, you've got a lot more of those sorts of things, and CGI can make everything look so huge in scale that it kind of almost loses it, but watching that 
the practical effects of and just enterprise in in the dock yeah and of the alien ship that kept going and i was watching it and i don't know about you but i hated in fantastic four colon rise of the silver surfer and green lantern when you have these brilliant cosmic villains and they just become an amorphous cloud and i i was watching this going i hated that but this amorphous cloud i loved this amorphous cloud looks interesting and weird and enticing and even though it had the kind of again these days i'm a lot more just give me a give me a smaller stake i don't need everything to be world ending reality destroying whatever whatever this i feel gets away with a lot more of that why i talk about a small film with people i always say it's a really good piece of sci-fi cinema as a star trek film it's kind of pants and I definitely see why they went for a more, um, con- for a less big ideas scope with the films going forward. Mm. Yeah, it feels like a, an interesting one of going, okay, your first film was this Earth-destroying cosmic entity from some kind of machine race uh, that's descended from us. This is a massive idea, mass- massive scale the future ones do seem a lot smaller and more more personal, at least for for two and three. They're, uh, um, they're, they're definitely more adventure films. Yes. Yeah, and it, I wouldn't say they suffer from that. This does feel like it's got the headiness of, of a Star Trek episode. It's just... But you could honestly take out the cast and replace them with generic space characters here. Mm. And you would, for the most part, get the same, get really the same film. Like, you know, the, like Spock has like the only character who really has a plot connected out of our main central cast. who aren't going to end up dead at the end of this film. Yeah. Only Spock really has a connection to Vija. Beyond it being, this is Tuesday for us. This is the big thing we're dealing with this week. What? And it's he sees, he sees like the the end point of himself, of a creature which is pure into you know which is pure logic and intellect, but no heart. It's an interesting one with Spock because I think they would wrap up his Colinar plot a bit differently possibly in a modern film and go aha he has defeated the foe therefore now he has to go back and pass it rather than you know he starts out flunking from vulcan vocel kind of ceremony by going oh no you've got you've got some emotions you're curious about this sentient kind of thing off in the distance so yet when he heads off, him lying to folks about it is is gloriously understandable. That kind of, you know, oh yeah, I'm done with my with my work there. It's like yeah, because you dropped out. Um, I don't know. It it's interesting how it was left like that, rather mm. than um, that sort of uh, Campbellian 
Aha, I've vanquished the thing. Now I get the treasure, which is to be completely emotionless. So, yeah, um, it was an interesting journey for him. And I'm quite pleased he had a bit of a haircut because it was looking a bit, a bit kind of. He looked like me during some portions of COVID lockdown in 2020. Yeah, no offense, but yeah, he, he definitely had that vibe going on. And it was interesting seeing Vulcan as well. This is my first time seeing it since we started. And I know we see it in, in the original series, but it does look, it looks like a bit of a shithole, to be yeah. honest. I, I guess when they've got so many intellectual pursuits to be doing, agriculture is not going to be one of them. It depends. You know, you might, you know, there might be some kind of um, you know, mathematical beauty in flower arranging. True. Oh, that was one other thing I really liked with this. Uh, that Spock's version of logic and Vija's version of logic. Like for Spock, he still he understands there is a place for art and beauty and personal connections. And that is logical to him and for Vulcan people. Of course, all of this exists where Vija has no context, no understanding for like, oh, why do these games exist? Obviously, this is just, you know, for losers or whatever. And I quite, I like the, similar to with Changeling, where Spock's logic and Nomad's logic were different uh, different flavors of it. It's not just that if you're a logical being, you are a machine. If you're a logical being, you see no purpose in art, in play, in any of those kind of things. It's like, no, no, we understand more of the sentient, you know, human, Vulcan, whatever experience. And that was one of those things where, much like Klingons can sometimes seem like a monoculture, Cardassians, all of them. The same goes for Vulcans, where far too often they are just, I will be the joyless species. So yeah, there was there was that as a nice little reminder. But um yeah, it it was an interesting first glimpse into what Star Trek does with films. And it'll be a little while before I get before I get exposed to a Star Trek I've seen zero or one times. So the others will be kind of nicely familiar to me but this this was a a joyful surprise because i was i was bracing myself i've seen you know youtube reviewers I'm sure. you, you, you've seen the the the, the 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 atypical conversation about this film mm. yeah yeah i mean i i was one of those fans of the that guy of glasses website i've i saw too many of those kind of reviewers sort of things i'm sure i saw enough snarky put downs of this and yeah just to experience it was a it was a bit of a joy really um again uniforms distractingly bad and like i reached a point where emma and i she was watching this with me i we were saying the colors don't do anything with rank it's the background of the patch that has the Starfleet insignia on it that says where you work. And none of those, well, almost none of those have context to any of the ranks elsewhere. Like, it must have just been a rough year or a couple of years for them all. 
in Starfleet going, okay, yeah, we change our uniform every few years. That's nice. Shakes things up a bit. What What is this? Like, was there an excess of this fabric? Like, was the Enterprise being hazed? This is that period of time where, you know, whoever the designer was, this is clearly a, even in Utopia, you still have people who rush it on the Friday. Yeah. Rush the design on the Friday to get to the pub. Yeah. Uh, what, what are we doing for the uniform? Uh, scribble, scribble, scribble. Job done. Let's go. Right, there we go. Clock off. Job done. Uh, apparently, I, I guess the costume designers of the film saw Space 1999 and thought, hmm, let's have, let's have the color scheme look like it could be watched in black and white and lose nothing. God, I swear. Some of these things. Um, yeah, it was interesting seeing the look of the Enterprise as well, given what we've seen both in the TV show and in the later films. It, it lacks a level of warmth. Uh, I know the TV show has a, a kind of bright color palette anyway. And, you know, the, uh, the next-gen Enterprise has that kind of wood-finish executive suite kind of look i i think the mo like the enterprise is seen as the motion as seen in the motion picture is kind of going for what they're going to finalize in next gen where this isn't a spaceship this is essentially a community center in space yeah there are a lot of touches where you can feel that they're they're beginning to feel out what will become next gen in fact I completely forgot that they used the Next Gen theme tune. Uh, 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 no, Next Gen used the motion picture theme. Yeah, if you look at it in linear time, fine, fine. Okay, I was, okay Cisco. I was, I was thinking in my own experiential timeline, but you know, whatever. Um, apparently they use it in multiple films, which again, I've no memory of, but that theme tune is just Star Trek to me. TNG. And evidently yeah. this is why, because it's not just TNG, but it's for films. And I didn't see the original series, but I saw the hell out of those films. So, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see that. Um, yeah. And now the most fascinating question of all. Okay. Where does this go on the big list? Oh, I thought you were going to ask if my oath of celibus is on record. Uh, um, I, we, I can take as a given that it is. Obviously, we're doing a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, God. So, um, like normally when we start ranking any of these, I look at what I what I think would be the closest comparable episodes of the same sort of show just just that's quite a nice easy context but this is a bit different because this is the film so what i'm gonna do let's start off the bidding here almost let's how do you think this fares to the cage so i'm aiming high here like this is top 10 territory i definitely think that this is going to be in the the top echelons for mm. now it's definitely um, going to be up there. I I think it's better than the cage. Yeah. Okay. Um. Like, oh, uh, I guess what our best original series is Trouble with Tribbles, which was a a real joy. It didn't have the terrible uniforms. I 
I like this film. Yeah. I don't like it that much. No. Trolls and Tribulations? Like, are we going to break up for triple episodes? Because, again, like, Trolls and Tribulations is good fun. It relies a lot on referentiality. Um, but it's it's got characters in a fun new environment. It's got them all kind of... I don't know. You know what this film doesn't have? In its, and this is a point in its favour. Oh, yeah. Um, for all... That people for all the attempted banging in this episode, we have we have humans trying to bang robots. We have a giant metallic space god trying to bang a human. No one tries considers the possibility of having sex with their own grandmother. This is true. This is true. Okay, okay. So that pushes us out of the top five. And I admit, when I was watching this last night, I was in that space of going, "This is going to be a difficult one." Because if we were just looking at the space shots, it would be the most beautiful screensaver ever. And <laughs> if I was just looking on the ship, it would just be kind of awkward. Um, okay. So we're back down to original series territory. Mirror, mirror. It's... Ooh. So this, similar to the motion picture, is a massive point in the canon. You know, um, while the motion pictures plot elements don't last beyond it, it is the first film. It's the blueprint for what they finesse and what they start. You know, I think it's what Star Trek Two probably that they start getting um, into the swing of things. So I don't know. Is this lower than? I think this might be lower than Mirror Mirror just for that, just on that merit. Oh, this is this is this isn't fair because you're putting up one of my favorite movies mm. against one of my favorite episodes of Classic Trek, which is The Conscience of the King. I know. <laughs> See, if it's me, and not sound ungrateful for for your gifting of The Conscience of the King to me, um, in our our previous episode, I'd probably put this above Conscience of the King. But I'm also willing to accept any arguments otherwise, because people look good in Conscious of the King. I'm going to put, I would have to put this above the Conscious of the King, even though, well, they're, they're both films where Kirk is obsessed to um, uncharacteristic degrees. He just comes off better in Conscious of the King, mm. but the motion picture has everything else. Oh my god, it does. It has a lot of... Just a lot, really. Okay, so that's our new number seven on our big list. This means we are up to 31 entries on there. And um, yeah, that that feels like a good place for it. I'm, I'm going to be curious to see where the rest of the movies uh, fare on this list. Because there are some that are just... I don't know, feel like my childhood, almost. And, um, and yeah, some which are going to be real bottom shooters. I'm expecting Into Darkness to hit that broken bow, future tent sort of... Uh... See, see I, I think we should just put Nemesis at the bottom now and save ourselves the, and save ourselves trouble. Oh, you know, you know we can't do that. We are... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. The pact we have made. 
look, I I have watched Nemesis, Star Trek Nemesis once, and I have begrudgingly agreed that I'm going to have to watch it a second time. <sighs> God, I I think I might have seen it two or three times. Definitely at least two. It took me COVID. Huh? It took me. It took me COVID. And having two dollars in my wallet to watch Star Trek Nemesis. Wow. Okay. Amazing. I am. I'm very excited for that episode now. Um, similar to, I'm dreading Star Trek Into Darkness, but I'm also kind of, kind of curious to see how it all goes. I know that it's like one pound in Kex these days, <laughs> which oh is. Is fair, really, for yeah. for what it is. It's it's a gratuitous waste of Buck Rubanzai. Oh dear! How so... dare you waste Buck Rubanzai like that? Anyway, luckily those are films we have to deal with in the future, and um, it it's going to be probably a few episodes at least until we tackle another one. So it'll be a good long while until we get to Nemesis and Into Darkness. Um, for us, we have all we have to do now is to uh, wrap up the show. So, um, if you want more casual track, keep subscribed to this. Well done, we love you for that. If you want to pay us, if you want to fling us some money to help justify our Paramount Plus subscriptions, and hopefully in time make this a better podcast but also if you want us to cover specific episodes then go to our Kofi, and that's what we'll be doing next time on casual trek next time we're going to be doing time loops and next time we're going to be doing time loops and next time we're going to be doing time loops and next time we're going to be doing time loops and whatnot. You you get the idea. Time loops. And time loop and time loops we'll be doing next time. Yeah, love a good time loop. And guess what? We'll be doing time loops next time. And next time, time loops. So yeah, <laughs> aside from that, um, and outside of the show, uh, you can find me at Who Dares Rolls, where I talk about indie RPGs. Skyshark.itch.io for my comics and RPG supplements. And Faith Tales, where I write some bits and pieces about um, RPGs, comics, and any show notes from this. And uh, what about yourself, Mars? Well, you can find me on the Elon Musk hellscape, that is Twitter, at atmanmiles. Or you can go to my newly established blog, mareadlobato, all one word, dot wordpress.com, where I have uh, opin uh, opinion pieces, I post book reviews, and as the time this episode airs, I will be serializing my 2010 novel, Shadow of the Necronomicon, and hopefully I won't have died of cringe uh, by the time this episode comes out. I am so excited to read that. I am unnecessarily <laughs> excited. It's been cool seeing you having a, a blog up. And this is a project that I 
I've done NaNoWriMo. I've exiled dead drafts for should not see the light of day. I am so curious and so tickled by this idea. So yeah, everyone, check that out. We will also put links in the show notes to this. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> and also you can follow us on at Casual Trek Pod on Twitter, and will 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 we have a Casual Trek presence on Mastodon? Possibly, but we have to work out how Mastodon works. Yeah, I still don't understand Mastodon. And while I thought I was a real social media addict, apparently that apparently that's my hard limit. I I have a Mastodon account. I just I don't know how it works. Oh yeah, I've got one. I've had one for a little while since the last attempt at a Twitter Exodus. I just I just <laughs> it's it's too much effort. And apparently that's it. That's that's my breaking point. I'm on Hive as Skyshark and Twitter as Charlie underscore En, but um, yeah, I I will post sporadically there. Oh, and apparently I still have a Tumblr account. <laughs> I'm, I'm faked tales on Tumblr. I think I have a Tumblr account. I can't remember. Yeah, was so long ago. I know it still exists. Is it is it too late to start a casual Trek page on Life Journal? <laughs> we ought to try. So yeah, you All right. can find us on Live Journal. And um yeah, so that's it from us. Go do a Starfleet, and next time we're doing time loops. And next time we're doing time loops. If you think we're being annoying now, just you wait. And if you think we're being annoying now, then just wait. And next time it's time loops. <laughs> and live long and prosper. And have a jelly baby, because next time, it'll be time loops. There we are. I think we've... I, I think we have chased away our remaining listeners with that. You've been listening to Casual Trek, a Nerd and Tide podcast. Visit Nerd and Tie for all manner of podcasting goodness. From pop culture chat to actual plays, you know the drill. Casual Trek is by Mars Reed Lobato and Charlie Etheridge Nunn. Edited by Charlie Etheridge Nunn. And theme tune by Alfred Etheridge Nunn. Now, for your entertainment, please enjoy these moments of Mars singing to himself while we try and reconnect for call. Star trekking across the universe on the Starship Enterprise under Captain Kirk. Star trekking across the universe, only going forward because we can't find reverse. We come in peace, shoot to kill, shoot to kill, shoot to kill. We come in peace, shoot to kill. Scotty, beam us up. There's Klingons on the starboard bow, starboard bow, starboard bow. There's Klingons on the starboard bow, starboard bow, Jim. Star trekking across the universe on a Starship Enterprise under Captain Kirk. Star trekking across the universe, only going forward because we can't find reverse. Star trekking across the universe. On the Starship Enterprise, on the Captain Kirk, Star Trekking across the universe. Only going forward because we can't find reverse. Okay. All right. Fantastic. You're back.